1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. If I speak in tongues of men and of, a, of angels that have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Hey, all. Welcome to RUF. Um, it's a little shorter passage than we've been doing uh, recently. I don't know if you noticed that. We are starting a new series. We finished the book of Exodus last week. Um, if you weren't here, uh, we, we've been going through the book of Exodus. If this is your first time here, we're really glad to have you here. RUF is a place where uh, believers and skeptics and kind of everyone in between uh, are welcome and we gather around God's word to consider what it has to say to sinners who need grace. And we believe that that's all of us. Um, so what we're going to look at since we finished Exodus and kind of did this big sweeping view of the book of Exodus. Uh, and in that, we learned that the story of like how God reveals himself to his people in the Old Testament is he comes and hears them when they cry out to him. He saves them. He releases them from bondage. And then he cares for them and makes a way to be with them. And in many ways, this is just the same story as the Christian life. God comes to us. He hears our cries for help. He frees us from our bondage to sin. He cares for us. He feeds us. And then he makes a way for us to be with him. And what I want to look at for the next four weeks, uh, and we're going to have senior night in a couple weeks too, so I won't speak that night, but I've got four more times with y'all. We're going to look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 13. And so instead of taking this big kind of meta view of a book, we're going we're gonna to kind of drill down into one chapter of one book of the Bible. One of the reasons I want to do this is um, kind of in reflection of what, uh, what we learned in the book of Exodus is that God saves these people. But this is kind of the paradigm for how God saves people. He never... He never saves us just so that we can be with him only. He saves us to be a part of a community, to be part of his people, to be with him, but also to be among his people. So we see that in the Old Testament with Israel, that God is redeeming this people to be with him and with each other. And in a lot of ways, some of y'all have heard me say this before, but the Bible doesn't have a category for a personal relationship with God that is apart from a community. We've kind of made that category in American Christianity that we can just have this relationship with just me and Jesus and that's all that matters. Now, having a relationship with Jesus is incredibly important and that does matter. But the beauty of the gospel is that God has not only reconciled us to himself through the work of Jesus, but also to one another. And the way that he does that and wants to see that happen is through his church. And so we're looking at this book in 1 Corinthians 13, written to a church. And it's written to people who are trying to understand how to live in community with each other. And this is a really famous passage. This is probably one of, after the, uh, the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm, 
This is probably one of the most famous passages in the entire book of the Bible. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, these words that Lizzie read probably sounded familiar to you. Maybe you've heard them read at a wedding, or maybe you've heard them read at a funeral. Um, And it's understandable why it's very beautiful language. It's flowery. It's poetic. But this passage isn't primarily about marriage. It's not about um, marital love between a husband and a wife. And it's and honestly, after studying this, I don't even think it's meant to like sound flowery and nice to the people it was written to. In a lot of ways, 1 Corinthians 13 is like a big whiff of smelling salts to the church in Corinth. It's kind of a kick in the pants. It's strongly worded to them. Because Paul has, he's got some real issues to deal with his people. And so what I want to look at tonight is three things. A danger. Second, what really matters. And then third, how you get it. First, a danger, what really matters, and how you get it. Let me pray for us and we'll dive into this passage. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth, that the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer. Would you help us now? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Okay, first, a danger. Have you ever... um, I know all of us didn't grow up in the church or like religious things. But maybe there's been a time in your life where you are sitting and you are hearing somebody tell about how they came to faith. And the story went something like, you know, I I was down and out. I became a junkie. I was, you know, buying drugs or an alcoholic and I kind of hit rock bottom. And then, you know, I found a Bible somewhere and started to read it and God just like changed my life. And now I'm like this totally different person. And this person's like up in front, speaking in front of all these people. And it's just kind of this amazing testimony of how God's worked in their life. I remember, maybe you've been in a setting like that before. I remember being a kid and And sitting and listening to messages like that and kind of feeling regret that I didn't have a story like that. That my testimony was like pretty boring. Like my parents like always went to church and like I'm a Christian. (laughs) Yeah, just like, wow, amazing testimony, right? Um, And I remember listening... I remember listening to stories like that and thinking, gosh, I would, it would be so cool to have this like amazing turnaround story. And I want you to see that there's actually danger. There's danger in putting your confidence in your turnaround. And then the story of your turnaround. Or in other words, there's danger in putting your confidence even in how God is using you and your story of your turnaround. There's danger in putting confidence in that in particular. I'm not saying it's bad to have that kind of turnaround story. I think it's beautiful. It's wonderful. There's danger in putting your confidence in it or in even wishing for that. And we actually see this in what happens with the the church in uh, Corinth. So to understand where Paul is coming from, I need to give you a little background information about what the city of Corinth was like. Okay, so Corinth is on this little isthmus do you know what an isthmus is geography people yeah it's a it's it's a tiny strip of land that connects two bigger bodies of land and so um corinth is on a four mile wide isthmus that connects southern greece with northern greece modern day um but it also because it's on this isthmus yeah, that's the last time i want to say that word that was hard um 
it's got these two bodies of water on either side. So that made it like a really important port city from east to west, but also an important um, shipping city from south to north in Greece. And what that meant is it was incredibly prosperous. Uh, And not only that, but people moved from all over Rome to live in Corinth because there was great opportunity there. So you had a lot of educated people there. You had lots of wealthy people there. People who, it was kind of like the new money town, you know, like a lot of new money in Corinth. Um, Because of that, you had the people who served them. So lots of slaves lived and and servants and indentured servants lived in Corinth. Um, But also Corinth was kind of known as, I don't even know how a better way to put this. It was like the Vegas of the first century. Like what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. Like if someone was kind of bad or like lived this kind of like really pagan life, you would, you would say they're a Corinthian. Or if someone's like been perverted, you would say they're Corinthian. They've been Corinthianized. You know, they've, we, we've, we've like sullied them. They've, they've Corinthianized themselves. And the reason for that is it was really known as this city where there was a ton of sexual freedom. Uh, there was a huge temple to Aphrodite there. Um, every night... A thousand prostitutes would descend from the temple of Aphrodite into the city to practice their religion. And so it's, it's a very pagan city. It's a very religious city. It's a very wealthy city. It's a very diverse city. I hope that you're hearing some commonalities with kind of like where we live. There is no city in the state of Texas and maybe not many cities in the United States that are as similar to Corinth as Austin. Very, very similar. And what's crazy is like Corinth kind of has the incredible testimony. Because because this is like who they were. And then Paul goes and plants a church there and all these people are converted. There's all these people that have these like amazing stories. And God is doing amazing things in this church. And people are really excited about it. Corinth was known for being a place where there was incredible preaching. People like Apollos, who was this really well-known, respected, beloved preacher. Paul had preached there. Peter had preached there. They had all these incredible preachers. It's also a place where it was known that a lot of miracles happened. Where people were speaking in different languages in order to give the gospel communication. They were speaking in tongues. It was a place where people were doing incredible miracles. People were being healed in Corinth. On the outside, Corinth looked like this unbelievable testimony of all of these like kind of pagan sinners who now are doing these amazing things. But there's also a problem in Corinth. Corinth has a love problem because there's all these amazing things happening on the outside, but inside the church is a mess. It's a total mess. Let me give you a couple examples of things, and we'll, we'll get into more of these as, as we go, but like, just a few examples. For one, they were incredibly, incredibly clicky. There were all these divisions in Corinth. Even like, people would kind of be like, pick which preacher they liked the best. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about how, he's like, yeah, some of y'all say like, you follow me, Paul, and some of you are like, well, I follow Apollos, and some of you are like, I follow Cephas, and then there's like, of course, the people are like, well, I follow Jesus, 
you know, like, oh, wow, good for you. Wow, like, really above board answer there. But, like, everyone's just kind of like, they're bickering and they're competing and talking about, like, who's, who they should follow, who they should listen to. And Paul's like, enough of this. Enough of these divisions and cliques. But you, you, they even, you even see the, the kind of divisions that they had when they would gather and worship. Um, they would do things like all the rich people would get together and they would have the Lord's Supper together without the poor people, without the servants who had become Christians, without the slaves who had become Christians. And not only that, they were having the Lord's Supper and they were getting wasted. Like seriously, they were getting down, like down flat out drunk at church. That's, the, that's, that's Corinth. And Paul writes this letter and he's addressing, to, addressing all of these problems. But at the heart of the issue, he says, look, you guys, look, look at the passage. You can speak in the tongues of men and angels. Some of you may have, you can have prophetic powers. You can understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Some of you have great faith. Some of you are willing to deliver up your body to be burned for your faith. You're willing to die for your faith. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. Is what he's saying. They have a love problem. And the same is true for us. If we don't have love, we're nothing. You can, you can say, I'm a Christian. I, you can share the gospel with like everyone you talk to. If you don't have love, you're nothing. You can stand out on that, on, on Guad and preach at people while they walk by. If you have not love, you're nothing. You can have your quiet time every single morning and evening. If you have not love, you're nothing. You can Instagram your quiet time every morning and evening. If you have not love, you're nothing. You can be theologically right you can be theologically right and have all the Bible answers about controversial issues like sexuality and gender and abortion and predestination. And if you don't have love, you're wrong. If you don't have love, you're nothing. You can be right. If you don't have love, you're nothing. You can be an RUF campus minister. You can be an RUF intern. If you don't have love, you're nothing. You can have people tell you that God has done amazing things through you. If you don't have love, you're nothing. You can have an amazing testimony about how you kind of came from rags to riches and you were down and out and now you've got this amazing story. If you don't have love, you're nothing. And I hope you see like there's actually a really great example of this earlier in the New Testament and it's Judas Iscariot. So Judas is one of the 12 disciples. He's the one who um, betrays Jesus and kind of reveals himself to actually not be a follower of Jesus, to not believe. And he gives Jesus over to the chief priests uh, and to the rulers and they crucify him. But I, I, I hope you... I don't know if you know this, but like Judas did amazing things. Listen to what um, the book of Luke says. 
in Luke 9, Jesus called the 12 disciples together. So Judas is one of them. He's with the group. Jesus called the 12 disciples together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal people. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Did you hear what it just said Judas did? It doesn't say Jesus brought the 11 disciples and Judas, but like we know he's not going to be. But no, it's like Jesus gives all of 12 of the disciples power. And they're not going out and being like, man, like all of us heal people. But when like Judas did it, like it didn't work. Like we don't know. Like Judas just doesn't have the touch or something. Like, I don't know. Like what's, what's up with that guy? No, Judas did it. Look, Judas's resume is better than any of yours. It's better than mine. He cast out demons. He healed people. He was in a small group Bible study with Jesus for three years. His resume is better than yours. I'm sorry. It's just true. His resume was so good that on the night that Judas betrays him, when they're all gathered around together, Jesus looks at them and he says this. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me now. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? Now, I think that's interesting. Because we kind of imagine, I don't know, we, I am prone to imagining Judas just kind of like walking around with like little horns on his head for like three years, just kind of like mincing about like, (laughs) I can't wait to get Jesus, you know? And you just imagine when Jesus is like, one of you is going to betray me. They're all like, Judas, like we know who that's going to be, right? Like he couldn't even heal anyone or like cast out demons. And he's got like, he's mincing about, like we know it's Judas, right? It's going to be him. But do you you hear what they said? When he says, one of you is going to betray me, they become sorrowful and they ask, is it me? Is it I, Lord? You see, Judas had everyone fooled. And people thinking that you're good doesn't make you a disciple. People having a good resume doesn't make you a disciple. And there's great danger in even tricking yourself. I, I tricked myself when I was in the ninth grade. I thought wearing turtlenecks and having my hair gelled straight up in the front like the Backstreet Boys was cool. Right? That was a bad situation for me. <laughs> Glad there's not a lot of pictures of evidence of that. But like, there is danger in tricking yourself and fooling yourself. And what, <laughs> what Paul says is that Christianity apart from love is not Christianity. He says, you're like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And what he's referring to right there, this would, this is the like barb that just would have like pierced the Corinthian church when he tells them that. Because the people who used resounding gongs and clanging cymbals in Corinth were the pagan idol worshipers. The reason that you like beat symbols together and made a ruckus is because you were trying to wake up your gods so that you could worship them. And so Paul's like, hey, look, you're doing all this stuff. You're like beating symbols, thinking that you're getting things right. If you don't have love, you're wrong. Actually, if you don't have love, you're like a pagan. You're no different, Paul says. Don't fool yourself. 
So what is it that matters? All that matters. It's all about love. The Christian faith is all about love. That's it. It's love. And I hope you don't hear me saying like, it's all about love, so like, don't worry about rules and laws and all that. No, no, no. Actually, Jesus, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, to cast it out, but to fulfill it. And when someone asks them about the law, they're like, hey, what's the, what's the most important commandment in the law? Jesus says, I'll tell you what it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. What's the most important commandment? Love. And then he throws in like a bonus answer. He's like, and the second greatest commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, all of the law can be summed up in those two things, love and love. It's all about love. The Christian faith is all about a God who is loving and who loves you. And so what God wants from us is love. Without it, we are nothing. We are made in his image. We are made in the image of a God who is. The Bible literally says God is love. All love is rooted in, its source is him. He is the original love. When they're trying to describe the kind of love of God in the New Testament, did you know that Christians had to invent a word to describe this kind of love? Agape love. It's a word that they just invented Because what agape love is, is it's love for the good of someone else who who doesn't necessarily love back. It's love that is not interested in like taking. It's only interested in giving. C.S. Lewis in his book called The Four Loves says it this way. This is what agape love is. In God, there is no hunger that needs to be filled. Think about this. this. He's being theological here. He's saying if God is all-powerful, all-knowing. If he is infinite, then he's not lacking anything, right? If he were lacking anything, he wouldn't be infinite and all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present. He says, in God, there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. This is God's love. This is agape love. Love that simply desires to love for love's sake. Love that loves you not because of what you're giving to it. Not because of the bottom line that you're adding. Not because of your resume. But God loves because he loves you. And one of the reasons I think this is so wonderful, Paul In 1 Corinthians 12, the chapter right before this, he goes on a long explanation about spiritual gifts because everyone's kind of like looking at each other in Corinth and these are like wealthy, smart, competitive people and they're all comparing each other to one another. I'm sure y'all never, like y'all probably can't relate to that, but like just imagine if you will what it would be like to be around a lot of like smart, capable people and like the temptation you might have to compare yourself to others, just like hypothetically. Anyway, so like, He's looking, they're looking around and they're like, man, like that person's really good at teaching. I I wish I was like that. Or that person like healed someone. I want to be like that. And they're comparing. And 
Paul does this whole talk about, like, this whole chapter about spiritual gifts and how every single gift in the church is important. We all need each other and we all have different kinds of gifts. But then he comes to chapter 13 and he's like, but all those gifts don't mean squat if you don't have love. You can be faithful, you can speak with the tongues of angels. If you don't have love, you're nothing. And this is why this is so good. Anyone can be great at loving. Anyone, anyone can't be a good speaker. Anyone can't, just anyone can't have like tons of knowledge or wisdom. Just anyone might not have like the spiritual gift of healing like it talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. These are special gifts that God gives at special times to particular people. Anybody can love. True greatness in the eyes of God is something that anyone can do. And he welcomes you into it. And you know this, you know this, we know this. This is how people actually change. People change when they experience love. I have yet to see somebody in a YouTube comment section be like, you know what, that's a really good point. I have changed my mind on that based on the cogent argument you have made in the YouTube comment section. The reason nobody does that is because what, what changes us is love. A friend of mine in seminary kicked out of his house when he's 15 years old. Couch surfing, kind of, he's just a rebel, um, sleeping at different people's homes, um, trying to stay on his feet. He gets invited to a pastor's house uh, for like a pool party that some church is doing. And the pastor sits him down and he tells him the gospel. He tells him about Jesus and he listens. And he's like, this is interesting, okay. But you know what he did at the end? At the end, the pastor stood up and he said, can I hug you? This 15-year-old young man. He says, the first time another man hugged me. Never been hugged before. He said, when that pastor hugged me, I knew God loved me. See, what changes us is love. And that changed him. In seminary now, he has 11 kids now. <laughs> yeah, right? This guy, this guy who, when he was 15, didn't have someone hug him. Y'all, I'm not part of like some secret cult that makes you have like lots of kids, just to like clarify. I, I have a friend who has 11 kids. We have five kids, like, but it's okay. Like if you have like no kids or one kid or two. Anyway, I just felt like I need to say that. But what changed him, think about what changed the trajectory of his family. Think about those little kids who now have a dad who hugs them and loves them. What changed? Love. Love is what does it. Because we're made in the image of a God who loves. If we have not love, we're nothing. We're a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. Um, our RUF, uh, all the RUF campus ministers share um, an email listserv, which is one of my favorite parts of my job because I'm always learning from these other people um, on the RUF staffs and all, all over the country and really all, all over the world. And uh, someone posted this story in our... Um, in our email listserv a couple weeks ago. It just blew me away. He was talking about, um, this is not an advertisement for summer conference. He was talking about something that happened at summer conference. Um, and he said, actually, this, this guy was a substitute RUF campus minister. It wasn't his group that he was going with. Um, 
but uh, their campus minister couldn't go. So this pastor just kind of stepped in and was like, I'll lead the group. He goes with his group. They've got like 35 students there. He's kind of getting to know everyone. Um, one of the students that goes with them is a, is a young man named Jason who is quadriplegic and is going to a beach trip with a bunch of college students. And um, the pastor said, you know, I was just con- concerned how Jason was going to do on this trip because like we're going to be on the beach, not super friendly to wheelchairs. Um, and the first night um, they get there, everyone gets in their rooms. Next day they're kind of walking around. He runs into some girls um, that are in their group and the girls are like, we've got, we actually, they're like, we actually have a girl um, that's in our room who's also, she's paralyzed from the waist down and she's having a really hard time. Um, she seems like kind of angry that like her group's not hanging out with her. They're not spending time with, with, with her. So we're going to, we're trying to hang out with her, but we don't really know what to do. And they're kind of asking for his advice, but it makes him think about Jason. Like how's Jason doing? Right? So he goes and he finds Jason and he kind of like sits next to him. And this is kind of after everyone's been on the beach and is cleaned up and waiting on dinner. And he asked him, he says, Jason, have you ever gone through a period in your life when you've struggled with resentment towards God? And Jason says, why? What reasons do I have to be resentful? And the pastor's like, uh, I mean, I guess because you're paralyzed? Your paralysis, has that ever made you bitter towards God? Jason says, well, my mama never let me be resentful. Besides, God has blessed me because he's given you guys as my friends. And as the pastor thought about that, he began to watch Jason more closely and what was going on with Jason. And what he realized is that everywhere Jason was, there was another young man named Dan. And Dan uh, was just another kid in this group. But every time they would go down to the beach, Dan would go and pick up Jason take him out of his wheelchair and carry him out into the breakers where everyone's throwing frisbee and floating around and having fun. And Jason, who's this kid from the Midwest who's never seen the beach before, would just laugh his head off as these guys held him in the water. And then when it was time to get cleaned up, Dan and the other guys would take him and they would, they would leave enough time in their day to be able to go back and shower him and clean him up and shower and they give enough time so that they could shower him with dignity and give him dignity. And they, they, they were his friend. They loved him. And so that's why he says, why, why would I have anything to be bitter about? God's given me you. He's given me love. So if we have not love, we are nothing. But if you have love, y'all, it's what it's all about. It's what life is about. Life's not about... I, I love that y'all are here at this amazing school and you're getting these incredible opportunities and you're going to have amazing opportunities all throughout your life, m- much for the reasons of like, being here. What your future friends are going to need, your future roommates, maybe even your future spouse if you're married, your future kids... They're not going to need your academic success. Some of you know, really know what I'm talking about here because you have parents who are more concerned about their lifestyle and their money. 
and what you wanted was love. If you have not love, you're nothing. Love is what it's about. How do we get it, though? Like, how do we become a loving community like this? The only way is because of what's true at the beginning of the book of Corinthians. At the beginning of the book of Corinthians, Paul tells him in the fourth verse, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. You see, through Jesus, because of what Jesus has done, we have God's love. It's not based on our resume. It's based on Jesus's resume given to us by faith alone, not because of what we've done. And so because you have, this is why I tell you every week before you leave that God delights in you if you're his, that he rejoices over you as singing because you have that then you can go love. The Apostle John says, we love because he first loved us. The only way that we can be a community of people who love well, the only way that RUF will ever be a place that loves all kinds of people well is for us to see and believe and know that God has first loved us. And as we see that, we will, we will be fueled by God's love. And um, I'll close with this story. In 1864, a man, uh, a priest named Father Damien decided to do something that no one had been willing to do. Well, a lot of people have been willing to move to Hawaii. He moved to Hawaii. But he did what no one in Hawaii wanted to do. He went and started a ministry in a leper colony. In March of 1864. And for years, he lived among these people. He learned to speak their language. He built houses with them. He bandaged their wounds. He built hospitals and churches and roads. He built 2,000 caskets for them. So that they could be buried with dignity. So they could bury their loved ones. And because of Father Damien's work, that leper colony became a place where people didn't just go to die, but they went there to live. But the most climactic point of Father Damien's ministry was 16 years later when he stood up to preach to them. And for the first time, they heard him say, we lepers. Because he had become one. In caring for them and loving them and serving them, he had become a leper. And in that moment, everyone there realized he had what they had. And from that day on, they knew that that he understood exactly what it was like to be them because he had actually stepped into their skin. Do you realize that's what Jesus has done for you? That he doesn't love you from a distance, but he actually has stepped into your skin. Jesus became a a human being. He has been, he, he has permanently altered himself 
and become a man. He wasn't a man and then he became a man and he will forever be a man. Did you know that? He used to not be a human body and now he is. He was permanently altered so that he could love people who were not like him. And what he calls us to do is to alter our comfort, our cares, our desires, so that we can love all kinds of people, even people who are not like us. And we will do that as we see the gospel, that God loves you this way. And my question for you is like, have you experienced this kind of love? Do you know that God loves you this much? He loves you this much. Not based on your resume. He loves you because he's gracious. And so he welcomes you to him. If you haven't come to him, come to him. Call out to him. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in him and he receives you. Anyone. Everyone. He loves you. And then what he does is he calls us to participate in loving others. Because that is the best thing, the best way we can spend our life. So what would it look like for you to start doing that today? What would it look like for RUF to do that? To become a place where people are loved and experience God's love? I want you to think about, I really like want to challenge y'all to think about what your day-to-day life would look like if you woke up thinking and believing God loves me. And now I get to go love people. Let me pray for us. Father, um, we thank you that you are a God of love. That you are all about love. That you have loved us um, before we ever loved you. And I pray that uh, you would help all of us to understand that, to see that, to believe it. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more time.